the focus is going to be on the intrinsic freedom of the mind itself, which is probably something we're all looking to find. Um, now, your center is in the Galupa tradition. Many I teach from the Nyingmapa traditions. So there are slight differences in technical terms and how we approach these issues, but not so different. As we know from the tradition, the Buddha taught 84,000 dharmas, 84,000 teachings. That's an awful lot of words and an awful lot of different ideas. He did this in order to contact with many different people. So that should give us an indication that uh, Buddhism is not about homogenization. It's not a small pot that you have to melt yourself to pour yourself into. It's very, very wide and broad. And however you are, you can find your deep connection with Dharma without changing too much. This is the particular view of Dzogchen, which is uh, an aspect of the Nyingma teachings, which I'll explain. Generally speaking, uh, we organize the teachings according to the view, the meditation, the activity, and the result. The view is very important. It's like how we uh, attend to what is occurring. It's a way of allowing the world to be revealed. In the outer teachings, this is an encouragement to look with a particular kind of clarity that by looking in, a, in the right way, you see things how they are. In the more open, non-dual teachings, it's not about looking, but receiving the immediacy of life as it shows itself. Because it's very difficult to look without an, a selective attention, without the, the mind being drawn to features of the world which particularly appeal to us or repel us according to our own positioning, temperaments, habit formations, and so on. So the view is very important, and I'll outline this a little bit. <clears throat> Generally speaking, the teachings are organized in terms of the vehicles of the cause and the vehicles of the result. The vehicles of the cause focus on what is the cause of gaining enlightenment. It means to develop both wisdom and compassion, to purify uh, obscurations, to remove the restricting veils of karmic formations and so on. So this is when we start from the outside. We imagine enlightenment is something far away. We want to get there, but there are obstacles along the way. Uh, they can be obstacles of our situation, but also obstacles of how we are. So this would be general Mahayana aspiration to take the Bodhisattva vow and save all sentient beings, but it's preparing for going on a journey and then going on a journey, and you go on a journey to get somewhere else. It's not so good where you are. You can't just be where you are. You have to go. In the teachings of uh, the result, the vehicle of the result, which is what you get in Tantra, especially in the higher Tantras, the entry point is to take yourself in, within the mandala of the deity, to fully identify with the deity, with the purity of your existing situation, 
and you act in the manner of an enlightened presence and on the basis of your one-pointed commitment to that, you become less and less permeable to the various provocations of life situations. It's like a kind of tefloning of yourself. So you have a thin invisible seal that means you don't get hit and shocked by everything that's going on. It's also a path of effort because you have to sustain the visualization, you have to do lots of mantras, there are samayas to keep and so on. The particular view I want to highlight today is Dzogchen, which means the great completion. It means that which is already whole. That is to say, if your mind, as you are now, did not have the Buddha potential or the Buddha presence, then enlightenment would be impossible. The traditional example for this is if you take up a piece of coal and you wash it for a year every day, scrubbing and scrubbing, it won't be white by the end of the year. Coal remains coal. If you wash gold, it doesn't become lead. If you wash lead, it doesn't become gold. So the idea that you take this fallen, corrupted human existence with all the five poisons and limitations and somehow you bring about some alchemical transformation, that's a view that belongs to certain pathways in Buddhism. And there's nothing wrong with that. If it resonates for you, that's a good path. But in Dzogchen, we stay with the fact that the mind itself is pure from the very beginning that we have a clarity which is intrinsic. That is to say, it belongs already in the unchanging presence which we all uh, manifest from. There are many contingent factors in our lives, things which arise due to causes and conditions, the weather, the economic situation, the political situation, quarrels in families, the movement of your own moods and so on. There are many, many factors moving around. These are like energetic winds blowing in the sky. When we identify with ourselves as a manifestation in the world of manifestation, when we take ourselves to be something which is apart from other beings and yet connected with other beings, then as they move, so we move and the moods of our families, friends, and so on, have us moving, just as our moods impact other people and bring about situations in them. People read each other's faces. They say, are you okay? Are you worried about something? There's a sense that how you are is the communication to me about how, how I am. So I say, are you okay? Have I said something wrong? You look upset then you have to reply, no, I'm not upset with you. I'm thinking about something else. Then I say, oh, and what could that be? And you go back and forth, back and forth. And this is the interactive conversation through which we weave the continuity of ourselves while simultaneously being altered by circumstances. So these are two factors that we will look in more detail at. The fact of our changeability our permeability, the plasticity 
of how we are, coupled with our idea that we continue as ourselves. I know I change, but I'm just me. Clearly, there's some kind of tension or contradiction between these two positions. And that, that is because when I say I'm just me, there's a kind of solidification, a kind of densification, contraction, compounding, squeezing of the various aspects or elements of my existence into some kind of core essence of me. Oh, I remember when I used to do that. I've always been like that. We have many kind of statements and memories whereby it's as if we are compressing moments in time as they arise and pass into some kind of dense essence, just the way coal arises from rotting vegetable matter, which is compressed for a long time. So we have this dense structure inside us. In fact, the density is more like ice. The flow of circumstances is always changing, rippling and moving, but we are like a block of ice floating along in the ocean. We, have, we, we provide for ourselves a reference point. So the teachings of Dzogchen are primarily concerned with seeing that there is no separate essence to this ice-like formation. And the more we allow ourselves to let ourselves manifest with events, with circumstances, that we can be happy, we can be sad, we can be mean, we can be selfish, we can be generous, we can be endless numbers of possibilities. The more we allow that, the more we see there is no fixed aspect to ourselves. This is very interesting because in many, many religious teachings, many general Buddhist teachings, they say the key thing is to be a good person. Try to be kind. The, the, there's a kind of template or a kind of shape that you should aspire to bring yourself into harmony with. But in Sokshen, when you, when you find that you're being angry or bitter, the key thing is not to go into judgment about that, not to decide, oh, this is terrible. What will other people think of me? I don't want to be like this. If my mother saw me behaving like this, she'd be so upset. All of these create more <clears throat> density to experience. What we want to do is just stay with this moment of the arising. I'm bitter, and so I'm biting you. I'm saying horrible things to you because I'm in a bad mood. Oh, so what is this bad mood? When you don't enter into judgment about how you are, when you allow your exquisitely precise way of manifesting at this moment, this unique patterning, then you see, oh, it's movements of energy. It's particular orientations which arise and then dissolve. And again, the paradox is the more you allow it to be as it is, the more quickly it dissolves. By merging with it or resisting it, you tend to reinforce it by your attention, and this causes it to continue more and become a kind of aspect of your own personality. So, 
not being involved is at the heart of the practice. Not to be worried about how you are. The ego self, your personal identity, is a construct. The construct is something which has been brought together by factors from previous existences, by your family, by your birth experience, your schooling, and so on. This creates tendencies whereby you organize yourself in patterns which are repeated, and you think, oh, this is me. I have a tendency to, to depression or to talk too much or I get a bit manic or however it would be. We all have particular profiles. When you enter into judgment about this, you reify or make real, make separate, essentialize what has occurred. So in the general teachings, we talk about inherent existence, the, the, the ahamkara or atmakara, holding on to some essential truth of how a tree is, how a cat is, how I am, as if we were defined by a personal essence inside ourselves. When you enter into judgment, that's what you do. You say, oh, I like Bill, but I don't like Mary. God, Mary, I can't bear to be with her. So there's a sense Mary exists as a knowable entity. Mary on Monday and Mary on Friday are the same. Mary in the winter and Mary in the summer are the same. She's awful. I can't bear her. This is, you look at yourself. You think, whoo, in one day I change a lot. In one hour I change a lot. In one minute I change a lot. So who is this Mary? Mary is an idea in my mind. Phenomena change because they are interdependent. The shapings of the world manifest independent origination. If you smile at me, I smile at you. If you look angry with me, I get a bit upset. So we are fluctuating in various ways rather than trying to control the patterning of how we appear, the issue is to bring ourselves into relationship with the immediacy of what occurs and stay with it. So all the Buddhist teachings privilege impermanence as vital. We have the outer forms of impermanence, the seasons, the fluctuations of um, world trade and so on, political alliances. This is very unstable. The movement of the celestial spheres and so on. We have the impermanence of our body, that sometimes we're more healthy, sometimes we're not so healthy. And we have the impermanence of our mind, that our thoughts don't remain for long. So it is this last factor that we are particularly concerned with, with meditation. Meditation means getting close to your mind. The best thing is not to have too many ideas about your mind, because then you've created some edifice before you even begin. The desire or the, the path, which is not really a path, is to be exactly where we are 
and see what is occurring. Thoughts arise and go. Feelings arise and go. Memories arise and go. How do we know? Because we see that this is going on. We have two main ways of looking in this way. Our habitual way is our dualistic consciousness. Consciousness uh, traditionally is described as eight kinds of consciousness, five of them connected with the body senses, the fifth with the mind, the six, <coughs> sorry, this is the five with the senses, the six with the mind, the seventh with the five poisons, and the eighth with the, the kind of com cosmic uh, storage in which trace elements are held. These consciousnesses are all connected with objects. You hear something, you see something, you taste something. When you go into a department store, and you go, in, first of all, into a, a big hall where there are many kinds of colored clothes. You're looking with colors. So your visual sense is completely evoked, awakened. And your visual consciousness is going over time. Then you turn a corner and you go into the section of the store where they sell perfume. Suddenly you're aware of the scent. Your <coughs> capacity to smell is awakened so there is a consciousness of smell which awakens and operates as long as there's smell then you go out and you go into a place where maybe there's shoes and you try on shoes and you're concerned may, mainly with the tactile kinesthetic relationship does my foot feel comfortable in this in these different situations the potential of how we can relate to the world is arising in connection with the particular stimuli of the environment The key point here is that consciousness is not permanent. Consciousness is evoked situationally. It is part of the dialogue or the interweaving <coughs> which keeps this realm that we call samsara going. Samsara is the possibility of repetition. I've been in this shop before. Let me show you where, where to buy good shoes. So you can lead your friend round to the place where they sell the shoes. Try these ones. They're really good. So in your mind, you believe that what you experienced three months ago has a direct connection with what's happening now. And so you are able to direct attention, to control the various provocations of the world and keep the show on the road. I know how to manage my life so that by the end of the month, I've paid all my bills and I've got a little bit of money left. So that's surviving. Otherwise, we are kind of battered by events. Consciousness in, in Tibetan is Namparshepa. It means knowing something or knowing about something. There is a subject, there is an object, <clears throat> and there's the activity the verbal direction of knowing or tasting or touching. Even forgetting is also like that. Oh, where did I leave my keys? The keys are somewhere. I don't know where they are, but you're me, the person who has lost the keys, the keys which are missing and the activity of trying to find them. 
So this movement of these three together keeps weaving us and binding us more and more into pictures of ourselves. I know who I am. I know where they should be. I don't know what happened yesterday. I came in, I was tired. I must have put the key somewhere. Where would I put them? They're not where they usually are. We become confused. How could that happen? So in that way, we, we, if the more you look, the more you see, oh, I am a series of patterns. And these patterns are held in place, not by some definite inner essence of me, but due to the interplay between my potential and circumstances. So last night I'd had a few beers, I come home and I'm tired, and I don't know where I put my keys. Normally I put them here, but I had too much beer, so I put them in the wrong place. Due to causes and circumstances, <clears throat> we behave differently. We are not who we are. Somebody insults us, we become different. We speak in a different way. You meet someone with a new baby and your face changes, your voice changes, you start relating to them. So we are this potential which arises interactively, which is evoked by circumstances, which is not pre-existing, it's not pre-formed, but it can have certain patterns which have a tendency to repeat. Now, this is very important. If we go back to the example of going into the, the shopping mall. You know the place, you've been there before. You know the place. What do you know? You have memories of the place. The actual place is not the same. The people walking up and down are not the same. They haven't been frozen in time since you were last there. They've been getting on with their lives going here and there. Maybe the security guard, you recognize them but they're standing in a different way. They're in a different mood. Maybe their feet are sore today. Maybe they're friendly today, maybe not friendly. The actuality of what you experience is different. Your idea about what is going on has enough, enough connectivity to allow you to feel that you have definite knowledge about what's going on. You go past the cafe and you say, eh, don't go in there, the, the coffee's terrible. Now, you were last there three months ago, maybe the coffee's better. You don't know, you won't know unless you taste it. No, no, I know, please don't go in there, it's terrible. So in that way, you see the, the fundamental structure that we exist with, which is the domain of ideas, of concepts, of interpretations, and the domain of the actuality of what is revealed moment by moment through our senses. When you attend to the senses, you can't rest on the past because you never know how it's gonna be. If you go on a mountain bike or you go surfing in the sea, you don't know how the wave is gonna be. You may have some skill, but you can't, you've never seen this particular wave before. You're going down the hillside on your bike. You've never quite been on this path before because it rained last night and it's more slippy than it was last week. So when you stay with the immediacy of how this field is arising, it's always fresh. When you mediate 
your experience of the world through your interpretive concepts, your memories, your predictions, your hopes, your fears, your ideas, you seem to be empowering yourself as somebody who knows what's going on, but actually you're dulling the uncertainty of the situation. Now, why would we want to do that? Well, it requires a particular ease in the heart to enjoy uncertainty, to take uncertainty as a cause of heightened awareness of what's going on as a kind of mild form of excitement. Oh, really? Oh, oh, oh. But that oh is also oh, I don't know. If you have structured your life around knowing, predicting <clears throat> the accumulation of knowledge about the world, then the fresh waves of experience arising moment by moment, and like the waves hitting the cliff from the Pacific and crumbling the cliffs into the sea. The cliffs have been compounded there and been there for thousands of years, but now the fresh waves day by day are undermining the cliff and bits drop into the sea and drop into the sea. Everything that we think we know about a place, about people, even about ourselves, becomes out of date very quickly. Sometimes that's quite upsetting. Years ago, I went back to India and I was in Varanasi, a city I used to know very, very well, and I would walk across it in different directions. I knew all the little streets and I got lost and I couldn't believe how could I be lost? Because, of course, the pathways in the city had changed. They built some new roads in, and the familiar landmarks were not so fresh in my memory. And I was lost. But I know this place. No, you don't. You have some memories, but the place is fresh. It's always changing. It's always changing. So we're always at the crossroads. Do we privilege the idea about life? which gives us a sense of continuing identity in ourselves and stable identity or manifestation of the phenomena? Or do we stay with experience as it comes? This is the, the key difference. Most kinds of meditation are based on repetition. So... You might be, for example, doing a basic uh, shamatha kind of practice, focusing on the experience of the breath at your nose. Before you sit down, you know what you're going to do. Or you're doing some tantric practice, a nundro or yidam practice, whatever it would be. You know what you have to do. You know the offerings that are required. You might need to make a torma. You know how the text goes. You've remembered the, the tune for chanting and so on you are repeating something you know. That is to say, the object of your attention is knowable before you engage. So this gives a stabilization to the field of experience. It allows you to bring yourself into a positioning vis-a-vis -vis what is going on so that <coughs> you have the confidence 
to give yourself fully to the practice. You don't need to be wondering, am I getting it right? Am I getting it right? When you've done it for some time, you just flow into it. It becomes a, a habit formation, maybe a spiritual habit formation, but a habit formation nonetheless. In Sokshen, our basic practice is not like this. We simply sit. When we sit, we don't know what is going to happen. It, there could be people fighting in the street. There could be dogs barking. Um, you could suddenly not feel very well. Any kind of event which arises is the meditation. We're not constructing a focus for practice. We're not uh, in contrivance or artifice. We're not creating an object and then attending to what we have created which would be a path of power, both in the creation and in the tracking of what has been created. Rather, we are unprotected. We just sit naked, open, raw. This is coming, this is coming, this is coming, this is coming. This is a particular kind of experience. It's passive, but it's not vulnerable. The aspect of our existence which is vulnerable is our ego self. Something happens to me, I don't like it, I wish this hadn't happened. This is my vulnerability. Vulnerable just means you can be hurt. It's a capacity for being hurt. People insult us or you apply for a job and you don't get it, you feel rejected, you get upset. Who is upset? I am upset. If this happened to you, you would be upset. I'm normal. I'm upset. Well, we can all understand that. So in the practice, we are looking again and again to find the point of confusion whereby we abandon the openness of our presence, the openness of our awareness, and take ourselves to be this finite shaped entity which is vulnerable to being buffeted and bashed by winds and events from different directions. As I was saying before, consciousness is always in formation. It is formative and, and formed. So if I'm reading a book and somebody talks to me, I say, hey, wait a minute, I'm, this is really interesting. I want to continue. So I'm feeling the intrusion onto my mental consciousness, which is now focused on the text. That is to say, focused attention is vulnerable. You can do shamatha for years and years and years. And if somebody comes and sticks a pin in you, you're still going to have a reaction. We respond. So we need to see how is the mind? When we talk of the mind, <coughs> we have a sense that in my mind, various things are occurring. Uh, memories, thoughts, plans, sensations, we feel hungry or thirsty or tired, all kinds of things arise in the mind. This is the content of the mind. It's uh, the, the occurrence 
of what we arises for us as mind, which we often take to be the mind. <clears throat> when we say, I'm so tired, it's this I appears to be I, me, myself. I am the one who is tired. It's as if I is the voice of my mind. I am I'm telling you about me, <clears throat> the experiencer. I experience that I am tired, and then I share this fact with you. So now you know that I am tired. Something has arisen for me, in me, and it momentarily at least defines me. God, I'm so tired. This is terrible. And I communicate it to you. So now you know something about me. And this is what our linguistic communication does. It's an exchange of words and sentences and motifs and ideas whereby we start to weave a shared narrative with other people. Because you know I'm tired, please don't ask me to do this. I'll do it tomorrow, but not tonight. I'm tired. So if the other person's at all intelligent, they're going to hear that and think, okay, fair enough. I know what it's like to be tired too. So in that way, interpersonal reaction requires to have a sensitivity to what people are saying. However, if the person always says they are tired when it's their turn to do the dishes or clean the bath, then you become suspicious. Then you think, oi, 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 this is bullshit. You're just telling some funny story here. So if we can tell the truth, we can tell lies. And lies are very, very important. Because from the point of view of Sokshin, our life is built on lies. This is also the view in the higher tantras. So we come to consider the nature of ignoring. The mind... as the site of experience. Without a mind, we wouldn't know anything. We are people with minds. So we think, I have a mind. And we'll unpack that a little bit. I have a mind. Seems to be some, sometimes a, a kind of tool that I can make use of. Focus your mind. You have to think about this. Okay, okay, I'm going to concentrate. So I can gather my mind together and turn it towards a task. So then, just as I have a hand that I can make do various things, I've got a mind and I can turn it towards being playful or being serious. This is how we ordinarily think about it. But this sense of the mind as being a personal possession, a possession which belongs just to me, which makes me different from everyone else because you don't know my mind. You don't know my mind. I know my mind. Sometimes anyway, but you don't know my mind for sure. I am not the same as you. Leave me. Get off my case. I'll, I can define myself. Don't define me. Now we see politically there's a lot of very healthy uh, resistance to being defined by others, whether it's uh, through patriarchy, misogynistic, racist, whatever. We see, oh, so much suffering comes in the world when one group of people are defined by other people. We say autonomy, freedom, liberation depends, being able to define myself. In Buddhism, this belongs to relative truth. That is to say, the truth 
within the frame of duality. I exist, you exist, and we are connected. We can be collaborative or hostile to each other. We can be competitive. We can be friendly. There are many ways in which we can relate, but we start from the position, I am not you, you are not me. There are two things, there is self and there is other. So I'll give you a short uh, description of how we can understand this positioning coming into the world. What I say now could sound like some kind of exposition of a dogma. Uh, I don't think it is, because if you actually take a bit of time and sit with yourself, and allow your mind to reveal itself to you, you will see that it's like this. But when we don't allow our mind to show itself, we simply have ideas about our mind and people have different ideas. So the ideas that I say now may seem to you very strange or wrong or incomplete or unhelpful. And that's because we are in the realm of talking about something. But the, the purpose of my talking with you today is it to encourage you to slip yourself gently out of this constriction of knowing about the world to enter a much more direct, lucid, immediate tasting of the world as it shows itself. So, the mind is open from the very beginning. Open means it's not closed in any way. It's not closed by having any qualities which would allow it to be placed in a box. It's not tall or, or short. It has no inside or outside. It has no color or shape. The mind is not a thing. And because it is not a thing, it's not a thing among things. It is free from relativity. It's not my mind in relation to yours. You're really lucky because you can remember jokes. I never remember any jokes. People tell me jokes, but I forget them immediately. So you're lucky. I'm not so lucky. In that way, you can think about yourself in relation to another person. But the mind itself, the mind as it is, is not, it's, it's not fulfilled in a content which is arising due to circumstances. So here we have to be quite precise. The mind is intrinsic. It is just there by itself as it is, and it's not there as a thing. It's not constructed. It's not born. It just is. Uncompounded, uncreated, infinite, inexpressible in language. It cannot be grasped. Now, in this openness of lucidity, of just being aware, events arise. They arise and they pass. They arise and they pass. Coming and going. And they don't make any difference to the openness. So on a stormy day, you go outside, you look at the sky, the shape of the clouds is changing all the time. S suddenly, very gray clouds, suddenly there's rain, then after a while, the wind blows it through and they get a blue sky again. This is like our mind. The mind is like the sky. 
and transiting through the mind or how the mind shows itself is this panoply, this ceaseless unfolding of different moments with different flavors, sometimes happy, sometimes sad, sometimes confident, sometimes doubting. And this is the key point to see. It is undeniable that these experiences arise. We know this. We have these experiences. The question is, what do they mean? You go, say you get invited to a party or a social situation. You ring the bell to go in. And while you're there, you suddenly think, oh God, why have I come here? I don't want to be here. You experience some kind of social anxiety. What will I say? What will I do? I'm anxious. What is that telling us about? Well, it's telling me about me. I'm anxious. I don't want to be here. Do I have to go? Maybe I, oh, it's too late. They're opening the door. What will I do? I'm anxious. So we experience this as something inside ourselves, as a kind of revelation of some essence of me. I am anxious. And now these people, they can see in my face, I'm anxious. Oh, this is horrible. I don't want them to see me like this. Now they know this about me, this truth about me. Huh. This is how the ego limits itself, shrinks itself, and suffers. Because it's a thief. It steals the experience and says, this belongs to me. But when you were walking along the street, looking maybe at the trees, looking at people's gardens, you weren't anxious. You go up the path to the house, and the moment when you go to ring the bell, you start to feel anxious. Why? This is a situational anxiety. Door, doorbell, you, meet together. Woo I'm anxious. The anxiety is not just you, it's you and the door and the doorbell and the sound of people inside and the thought, how will they be? That is to say, the anxiety is not intrinsic in you. But if you take it as a true marker of who you really are, I'm an anxious person. Why did I agree to come? I know it's my best friend's house, but I don't like to be there. I'm, I'm anxious. I don't like this. The more you define yourself in this way and you see a direct definitional structure inside you, which makes it impossible for you to be relaxed in social circumstances, you are compounding, you're pumping more and more energy into this shape in yourself. This is a truth about me. I've always been anxious. I always will be anxious. I'm just anxious. But what you don't recognize is you weren't anxious till you walked up the garden path. You were quite happy walking along the street. Not anxious, suddenly anxious. Later, not anxious. You get into the party, you meet someone, they're friendly to you, you start chatting, you relax, you're not anxious. The anxiety was co-emergent, interdependent, dependent origination. It was not yours, but the ego steals that, takes it into themselves as the proof of an internal essence. So 
So generally in Buddhism, if you study Madhyamika philosophy through Nagarjuna and so on, you look at this a lot and see the illusion, the emptiness of this false structure of an inherent existence. So when we're saying that the mind is intrinsic in its presence, it's not present as something. The mind doesn't exist, and yet it is. But it's not is in the way that my shoes are or my watch is. It's there <coughs> in the way the sky is there. So ignorance or ignoring the openness of the mind brings us into a fixation on something which is occurring. Things are happening all the time, moment by moment. What we take to be outer, what we take to be inner, always a flow, a flow of stuff. Something significant arises. <clears throat> and there are many ways in which this uh, is um, explained. One way is to say there is a first moment, which is called the the kind of first I or the first I am, Dagni Chikpo. It's like the solitary presence of something. And this something could be object or subject because subject and object both arise as experiences in the mind. <clears throat> There's something, a somethingness. On the basis of that somethingness, there is a second stage, which is it's dissolving. It's not. So, this is uh, this uh, sahaj or chepi maripa, the ignoring which is co-emergent or born together. This is a term you find in the Mahamudra teachings a lot, where it means that openness and closure are there at the same time. For example, you go outside, you look at the sky. Maybe it's a beautiful day, big open sky. You feel so relaxed, wonderful. And then wind blows in and a big gray cloud comes and fills the sky. Oh, I've lost the sky. It is as if the cloud has stolen the sky. The sky has vanished. The only reason the cloud can be there is because the sky is open. If the sky was closed with border guards, you know, if Mr. Trump had managed to build a wall across the whole sky, then the clouds wouldn't be allowed in. No Mexicans, no clouds. Then we keep America safe. So in our mind, we try to do this. Keep these bad things away. Oh, no, it's contaminated. It's destroyed. The cloud is showing the generosity of the sky. The openness of the sky is present with the cloud. If you see this, oh, every time you see the cloud, it hasn't stolen the blue sky. It hasn't robbed you of the sky. It has allowed the sky to show its generosity by revealing the presence of clouds. Just as the mirror shows its generosity by revealing many, many kinds of reflections. None of these reflections is the truth of the mirror. The mirror has a potential, which infinite, endless. The sky can show many, many kinds of weather. Our mind is like this. Our mind shows all these different qualities, jealousy, pride, and so on. If you see 
Say, I say you experience jealousy. It's not a very pleasant thing to experience, but you feel very jealous. You're uncertain in a relationship. You're not sure what to do. It's horrible. You cry and so on. This is a well-known experience. I've lost something. This is, it's all spoiled now. We, we were so happy. And now, now I keep wondering, well, where is he? What's he doing? So this is a kind of agitation in which you end up thinking about what is going on. All of these thoughts arise and pass through the mind. You saw your friend speaking in a very intimate way with someone else and you, you wonder what's going on, you become more suspicious, you look for clues. This is activity. This is mental activity, emotional activity, sensorial activity in which you are trying to work out, is there some real cause of anxiety or not? Am I doing this to myself or is he, you know, cheating on me? This is all movement, movement, patterns of energy, of expansion, of contraction, fabricating stories, interpretations. This is going on and on and on. Each feeling that arises comes and goes. Each sensation in the body comes and goes. You feel sick in the pit of your stomach. You feel you need to talk about it, but you don't want to talk about it because you're scared. You can understand this. What is happening, there is the arising and passing of sensation and memory and hope. It is all moving like the clouds in the sky. You are there. I couldn't bear it if he leaves. Really? Really? You have called. This is the basis of suicide and overdoses and all of these uh, terrible situations people get into because they feel I am this one thing. I am this finite person. And if you don't love me anymore, I will die. It is unbearable. Why? Because I am a thing. And if I'm not the thing that you want, then what sort of thing am I? Amazing. I'm not a thing. The mind is not a thing. The mind is like the sky. Many patterns arise and pass. But I don't want these patterns. I want Johnny. Johnny, come back. Only Johnny can make me happy. Really? Yes. Uh, this is bad news. This is bad news. Now you go shopping and if they don't have exactly the right kind of carrots, you're going to have a tantrum in the shop. This is madness. There are many carrots. But I wanted to make carrot soup and I need these carrots. Cook another kind of soup. No, I need carrot soup. I need Johnny. This is where we experience for ourselves duality very, very strongly. This subject needs this object, this particular object. Only this object will do. And if I don't get it, I'm going to be upset. Mind is like the sky. Johnny is passing through. All phenomena are impermanent. If you love Johnny, you have to know first thing about Johnny. He is going to die. He might die tomorrow. He might die on the way coming to visit you. You don't know. Johnny's death is hidden. It's not tattooed on his forehead. 
everything is impermanent. Don't build your house on sand. But I won't. So, what is this I, this sense of personal identity, which seems to be so central to our existence? If my mind is like the sky, and phenomena are coming and going like clouds, where does this I as self-reference come in? What is this? So in the text, they explain that this is a kind of thickening. I, in its most open, relaxed way, is just a presence. If you go for a walk in the country, you're walking up a bit, maybe you come over the the, uh, the ridge of a hill and you look out, suddenly there's a huge valley in front of you and you, you're just filled with that. You see maybe an eagle or a buzzard flying. It's so expansive. All of that is available. In that moment, you're not thinking very much. You're in a kind of state of aesthetic receptivity. You are filled and replenished by this openness. You you are open to the openness of the vista. Then you start thinking about it. You think, oh, I should take a photograph and send it to my mom. She would like that. So you look around for your phone and then you take a photo and then you send it all. Oh, she's going to be so happy because when we were small, we used to walk here. Where are you? You've gone for a walk down memory lane. You have vanished from the immediacy of the situation. You were infinite and you became sweetly finite. And now you're caught up in some reflections about times which are gone. It is as if in your mind, the past, when I used to walk here with my mom, is as valid as the immediacy of what I see in front of me. This is the power of the ego, to imagine that the representation, the memory representation, the photographic representation, the thought about something has an equal validity with the immediacy of what is arising. This is how the I comes, as ego comes into formation because it is filled with representations. It is cumulative. Uh, in, when you start to read Buddhist books, you see the terms compounded and uncompounded a lot. And compounded is when things are gathered together and brought into a structure. Something is built up. Artifice, artificiality, it is created. It is not intrinsic the ego self is compounded whether we think of these five skandhas which are studied a lot in the basic buddhist teachings form feeling perception associations consciousness or the, <clears throat> the five poisons the five elements what we see is pictures of the analysis of the world into certain base elements which when brought together allow you to build up different kinds of pictures. A bit like having a, an artist's palette with different blues and reds and you know how to combine the colors and you can make the purple that you want. So this is what we do with our narrative interpretation all the time. 
we are selfing. We are in the process of creating the individuality of ourself through the way in which we conceptualize our own existence. There is no self-existing self. Self is an activity. So most Buddhist schools would agree with this. <clears throat> but what we want to do from the point of view of Dzogchen is to see it very precisely, very directly. The self is a particular modality of energy. So again, if you take water, which is flowing, and you heat it, it becomes steam, it becomes diffuse. Or if you freeze it, it becomes ice. Ice is not different from water or steam. Steam is not different from water or ice. These are modalities of the situation. So ourself on a good day, when we're happy and relaxed, we feel spacious. And then when troubles come, we, we shrink, we tighten up inside, we're not so available, and we become more, as it were, earth element, more like ice, we've locked into something. These are the potentials or the modalities of how energy arises. We can never tell the truth about ourselves. Everything we say, if we are uh, assuming it to be descriptive, is always describing something which has already passed. It's always fleeting. The arising and vanishing of experience is fleeting. So, ignoring the open sky, ignoring the openness of the mind, the unborn mind, means that we are not aware of space as the basis of how our life reveals itself moment by moment. Now, in California, you haven't been awake all that long. In London, we've been awake a bit longer today. But even with a few hours of being awake, you have had hundreds and thousands of moments of experience. This was arising, that was arising, that was arising. And gone, and gone. Cleaning your teeth, making some coffee, having a pee. There and gone, there and gone. Your posture, your gesture, how you feel in your body. <coughs> whether you're excited or sad or worried, arising and passing, arising and passing. You are the flow of experience. <clears throat> you are the flow of experience. You don't have the flow of experience. We tend to be grasping. This is what ignoring means. Ignoring, <clears throat> ignoring the space of experience means that we don't accept that life is given to us. We are given the field of our participation. We find ourselves waking up, going out, walking down the street. This is what's unfolding for us. It's not a private possession. We are participative. But when I take myself to be separate, isolated, then it is as if the micro moves where I, whereby I seem to make these important um, choices about who I am are the defining elements of the truth of my world. I want tea, not coffee. I want to have this kind of muffin and not that. Through this, I am defining who I am.
through my choice from the options of the world, which were there before me. I am participating my patterning in the field of options. In the field of options, for us, most of us, are quite, that field is quite big. If we were in a prison in Iran, it would be very, very small. But even then, there would be options. Even for people on death row, there are various kinds of options. There is always variety. The mind shows infinite variety. How we relate to that can be open or closed. So the ego is a particular reading of the flow of experience, which interprets it as a series of finite moments which reveal finite things, a red car, a blue car, azaleas in someone's garden, a palm tree in someone else's garden. <coughs> this is what we see. This is how the world is. I am here and I see that. That is a mode of interpretation. That is a commentary. That is the narrative of the ego. So the purpose of meditation is to give yourself a holiday from this endless task of, instruct, of constructing the world in which you live. Because you don't actually live in that world. You live in the bright, unborn openness of the potential of the mind itself. Through the operation of your own hopes and fears, likes and dislikes, patterns established in your family, patterns established in school, and so on, you have come to believe that you are a specific person with a limited repertoire of possibilities. And if you sit in that interpretation, then you have a mind-created prison. Your own mind has brought you into a limited belief about who you are. Wherever you live, there are other possibilities. There are different things you can do. You could learn dancing. You could learn skateboarding at any age. There's all kinds of things you could do. Oh, I couldn't do that. Why? Because I'm me. I don't do that sort of thing. When you see that happening, you think, oh, the guard of my prison is a thought, a belief. I believe that because I am like this, I could not do that. It doesn't mean that you have to be heroic and trample over these um, constraining beliefs as if they were real. What we want to do is to see actually they are impermanent. They reveal to us their own thinness, their own translucency, their own actual lack of power. We give power to them and they limit our sense of who we are. The process of self-restriction continues ceaselessly if you are looking <clears throat> for proof that you exist as a separate individual. So ignorance means ignoring the ground, ignoring the open spaciousness of the mind itself, 
which in its unborn or unestablished or non-existence seems terrifying to the ego because we want to cling to something. What we cling to is our own imprisonment. So this is a very tricky paradox. We think, I want to be free. In all my lives, my future lives, I will work for the liberation of all beings. That sounds very nice. What you're actually doing is saying, oh, very good. I'm going to be alive as me for a very long time. Even if it takes millions of lives, I will work to save all sentient beings. And in that process, I will always be me. I will always be me. But who is this me? If you look, there is no me. Self is an illusion. So Dzogchen, the great completion, is not trying to change the finite into the infinite, which would be ridiculous, because the finite is already infinite. It is complete within the infinite. The infinite shows itself as a multitude of finite forms. For example, if you go to the ocean, what you see is wave after wave after wave. Each of these waves has its unique specificity, moving and moving and moving. What is a wave? It is a form of the ocean. Nothing is built separately. The, the wave hasn't come into a separate existence. The wave is how the ocean, how implies some um, intentionality, I don't mean that. The, the wave is the ocean showing its richness, its variety, its potential. The ocean is not something other than the wave. So the specificity of each of us as a person, as somebody with kindness, with selfishness, with anger, with headaches, and so on, each of these qualities, which is finite or shaping or defining, is itself a quality of the openness of the mind. So this is uh, something very central. The mind, like the mirror, shows many different reflections. The reflections are in the mirror. The mirror is infinite in its capacity to show reflections. Each reflection is present in the mirror as the a rich display of the potential of the mirror without defining the mirror, without marking the mirror, without limiting the mirror. So, this is a very condensed version I'm giving you today because we don't have so much time. So when we move to think about the meditation practice, it is simply to sit. There are many, many techniques also in Sokshen, but these are secondary. The main thing is to relax and open <clears throat> and to be present with whatever is arising. Sometimes what arises feels difficult and you want to get rid of it. Sometimes it feels uh, affirmative, egosyntonic. It makes you feel more like you and you want to hang on to it. 
there's no need to follow either pathway, not hanging on to what occurs, not pushing it away, just let it be there. Sometimes your mind is very troubling. You might be suffering from a lot of depression. You might be confused and your mind seems to fill again and again with some obsessional thought or a worry about work. You might then think, I can't meditate. What am I doing? If I was doing mantras, at least I would know what I'm doing. That would be meaningful or I could clean butter lamps. That would be useful. But now I'm just sitting here in a full of these ordinary thoughts. What is this? This is, can't be meditation. You've entered into a judgment. You have decided that you know what meditation is. Hmm, maybe not. Maybe you're just beginning to get, make friends with your mind. So you sit with the confusion and the confusion fills you. Ah, we remember the example of the cloud in the sky. When the cloud fills the sky, you only see clouds. And you, but that's only possible because the sky is open. Your mind is open and it's full of crap. Stay with your mind. This is the intrinsic openness of the mind itself. The mind is open and this is arising. If you stay open, it will go. In the Dzogchen text, they're always talking about the self-liberation of phenomena, that phenomena are self-arising and self-liberating. You wake up in the morning and you have a particular mood and then you have some coffee and your mood shifts. The mood was conditional. It was dependent, maybe you had a difficult dream or or the mattress was not very comfortable, whatever it was, now you feel different. Of course you do. This is the nature of impermanence, moment by moment. What we take to be true and definitive and final shifts. It shifts. We were like this, now we're like that. Because I was like that, and now I'm like this, neither that nor this can be truly definitive of me. But in the moment when this feeling tone is arising, which is finite and transient, because I, in my ego self, am used to merging into the finite, it is as if this is terrible. I'm not meditating. This is hopeless because I feel this is the truth of what's going on. I know that this is terrible. So what you've got there is the duality of subject and object. The subject says, if this is arising in my mind, I know it's not meditation. I have to do something different. So I do some Dorji Sempa practice to purify the obscurations that are the cause of me having these kind of experiences. What does this mean? I am now active. I am purifying my mind. This is not very deep Dharma. This is simply to dress the ego in some fancy clothes. I do my Dorji Sempa mantra. I have learned the long mantra of Dorji Sempa. Now I know exactly what to do. Who is doing the practice? I am doing the practice. Did you do your practice? Yes, I did my practice. Good boy, very good boy. 
Now the ego is being strengthened in a very subtle way. We should always be very suspicious of the tricky nature of our mind. The mind is beautiful, open, like a perfect blue sky, but the energy fields that move in it are very tricky. So when the content of the mind is difficult, we simply stay with that. If you try to change it, you are taking it up as definitive of who you are. This pattern of thoughts or moods or sensations tells me who I am. That is the interpretation of the ego. And the ego will keep running that interpretive storyline because it's always trying to nudge in and be part of the story. But if you would simply sit with the mind, however the mind is, letting it show itself, then we see happy thoughts come, happy thoughts go. Horrible thoughts come, horrible thoughts go. Arising and passing, arising and passing. They come by themselves and they go by themselves. Because they are going to go by themselves, I don't have to push them away. I don't have to push them away. This is the key thing. As long as you are involved in the management of the content of your mind, then it's as if you're running some kind of recycling operation. You think, oh, this kind of plastic we can recycle, this is not so good. This kind of thought I can make use of, this kind of emotion is okay, this is not acceptable. No, my God, this is like asbestos. We have to be very careful. You have to put special gloves on and a mask. When you, when you are managing yourself, which is the essential task of the ego, then you are looking at options, entering into judgment, on the basis of your template of evaluation, and then you're organizing your activity on the basis of that. This is how karma is accumulated. For karma to be accumulated, you require the direct experience of duality. That is to say, I am here and this is happening for me, whether it's external or something inside my body, inside what I take to be my mind. On the basis of that, I develop an intention. If we're, in, if we're talking about meditation, I find that my mind is very heavy. So my intention is, tonight I'm going to go to bed earlier. Or my intention is, I need to splash my face with cold water. Or my intention is, I need to do prostrations. So the intention then leads me to an action in which I connect with the <clears throat> the goal of my intention. And then the fourth aspect of karma is I am uh, congruent with the outcome. I think, oh, I'm glad I did that. That was good. By splashing my face with cold water, I feel more fresh. Now I can go back and do the practice. What you've done, although it's on a relative level, it's not a bad thing to do. What you've actually done is to say, this heavy feeling is a sign that something is wrong. 
I shouldn't be like this. My mind shouldn't be like this. I can't meditate when my mind is like this. You have imposed a limit on what is meditation. So you're sitting there, you feel dull and heavy. This is very helpful. What is dullness and heaviness? Your mind is showing itself to you as dullness and heaviness. Sometimes it shows itself as manic agitation. You keep thinking about something or there is a plan or there's a pain in your body. There is a memory. All kinds of things arise. They are like the clouds in the sky. Some clouds are light and fluffy. Some are very dark and they're full of lightning and thunder. And then the fluffy ones go and the hot, heavy storm clouds go. And this is like the content of your mind. It doesn't require your management. The management of the mind is the basis of the ego. The ego is the mind manager. The mind doesn't need managing. So in Sokshen, this is described as the inseparability of primordial purity and uh, instant presence or instant showing of the potential of the mind. When you look for your mind, is it big? Is it small? Is it colored? Is it, has it got any particular defining qualities? If you look again and again, you see, no, it has nothing like that. It's, it's like a clear blue sky. It's in the text, it says primordially pure, pure from the very beginning. It has never been relative. It has never stood in relation to anything else. The mirror itself is not in a relationship with its reflections. It just shows the reflections. The sky is not in a relation with the clouds. When there's a storm in the sky, the, the sky and the clouds don't need to go for marital therapy. The sky is just neutral. Cloud is doing a number. Then the cloud goes. Sky remains open. Mirror remains open. And if you see your own awareness, which is the intrinsic freedom of the mind, the intrinsic infinity of the mind or unlimitedness of your own mind as you are sitting here with all your thoughts and worries and so on then you see oh whatever comes comes this is what is arising and passing arising and passing this effortless arising is the field of your experience it's called plundrup in tibetan it means it comes all at once it's not built up bit by bit so this takes us back to this term, compounded and uncompounded. And you can see when you study the Sokshen text, you can see the deep meaning of all the other parts of Buddhism. Uncompounded means never created, never put together. So when we finish, you go out into the world and you see things. As you walk down the street, everything is coming, everything and everything and everything, and everything. You don't make the houses, the trees, the dogs, the cats, the people. It's there, and it's there, and it's there, and it's there. It's immediately here. Now, of course, you can get into identifying it. Oh, why would they have planted that in their garden? These bushes are so horrible, so ugly. Look at the next garden. Look at the roses. They're fantastic. Why would anybody do that? 
So there you have liking and not liking, going into a heavy judgment. These people are stupid. They've got a beautiful garden. Look what they've done with it. See, mine, in that moment, in that moment, let the judgment roll. Let the judgment roll. The judgment is simply a patterning of opinions. Some nasty, bitchy little opinion. But anyway, it was there. It's gone. <gasps> I shouldn't think that way. I should try to be kind. Now I have to practice equanimity. It's very important. Everything is fine. All the gardens are lovely. They're just gardens. No, this is crap garden. This is shit. Oh, no, no, no. That's terrible. No, it's beautiful in its shittiness. It's shittily beautiful. You see, the mind's running and running and running, and you go crazy. Let it come, and it goes. When you say, the reason I have this thought is because I am this kind of person. I am bitter. I am judgmental. I am unkind. Then you've again made yourself finite. Awareness is open. This arises, that arises, this arises, that arises. Wherever you go, whether you're sitting to do some practice or whether you get up and you make a cup of tea or you go to work and you have to be with other people or you're working through Zoom with the social distancing, let it come. For you who are in America, you're going to have this big election coming. There's all kinds of emotions and hopes and fears. You can see people going into all kinds of... Uh, very emotionally invested positionings. This is terrible. This is wonderful. In these situations, try to hear it, that people are fabricating essences. This person is terrible. How could they be the president? This person is wonderful. Let's hope they get elected. Whatever your politics, just watch. Your own mind is creating an image that you take to be real and true. If the president was just one way, everyone would vote either for him or against him. People have different opinions because they have different minds. If they have different minds, there is no way to define the president. The president is like a sculpture. As you walk around the sculpture and you look at it from different points of view, different aspects are revealed. No one is the devil. No one is divine. Mixed, moving, rich, multi-textured, full of different flavors. When you get into thinking in one-liners, this is terrible. This shouldn't be allowed. Watch your own mind. Observe what it does to your belly. See how the muscles tighten up. See how your breathing is affected. Oh, I'm tightening up. I am now the bearer of the holy truth. So this election can be very helpful because it's going to create a lot of turbulence. And the turbulence is like a stick turning the bottom of a pond and the old leaves and the worms are coming to the surface. What you see is not the faults of other people. What you have the chance to see is your own mind and how it works. Hopes and fears, longings, anxieties then you sit with that comes and goes comes and goes the more you can tolerate the ever-changing patterning of your mind and just with it then you develop this mirror-like awareness
you are the mirror and not the reflection. When you collapse into your opinion, when you enter into judgment, when you take up a position, you're just a reflection among reflections. You have this opinion, your neighbor has that opinion, your mom has this opinion, and you fight and squabble and good and bad and more turbulence and more turbulence. Stay relaxed and open. Let it be the way it is. Oh, but if I do that, I'll be in collusion with bad things. I don't want bad things to happen. Well, let's go back to the understanding of ignorance. When you ignore the open basis of the mind and you don't see the sky, what have you got left? The clouds. And you say, this cloud is this and that cloud is that. Like a child saying, oh, look, mommy, that cloud is an elephant. That cloud is a train. So we say, this person is good. That person is bad. This is your own mind making interpretation, which you then believe to be true for a while. How inconsistent are you? You are unreliable. You are extremely unreliable. Your mind is changing all the time. So this is why in the Dzogchen teachings, they say something which is quite different from what you find in many other Buddhist traditions. They say, don't be the manager of experience. Don't have a kind of, don't become a project manager that you're going to improve the performance of your mind. Because if you do that, you will be interfering. Interfering means altering, means making artificial. If you really decide that how your mind is needs to be changed, that's fine. But first of all, you have to see how is my mind? How is my mind means be aware of how the mind is showing itself. When you enter into judgment, you've usually come to a conclusion, what is my mind? It's solidified, it's definitive, and you're trapped inside it. So this is the key uh, possibility that uh, Dzogchen offers you, is a very direct path to opening to the mind itself as it is, as it has always been. Within this, consciousness moves. Within this, ego formations move. If you don't merge with them as being the truth of who you are, but if you relax into open awareness, then by allowing the free movement of the mind, you will find that you become more flexible, more responsive, your mind becomes brighter and sharper. But if you hang on to pattern formation, you're likely to become dull and rigid and dogmatic. And there's a lot of people doing that just now. So the view links to the meditation, and the meditation flows seamlessly into activity in the world. Because as you go down the street, you're receiving everything. You're not preoccupied. You're not thinking about the past. You're not planning the future. You're not on your phone. You're not listening to music. You're walking on the street, the very traditional pastime. You see people. 
you see houses, you're there, you're not somewhere else. And if you're there and relaxed, you receive. And what you receive is the flow of experience. And then you realize whether I'm sitting or walking or eating or sleeping, the flow of experience, the gift of the unborn ground flows through me as me always. And in that way, the ego dissolves. No sweat. So now we come to the time for some questions, if there are any. Yes, uh, thank you, James. Uh, Nilesh here with Diamond Light. So we have a few questions in the chat pod. And uh, just for kind of uh, getting uh, started here, um, I wanted to um, see if you can give some instructions on um, just a basic sitting practice, something we can take away from this teaching and start implementing in our lives. Okay, so <clears throat> the, the basic me meditation is not to formulate an agenda, not to have a shopping list. You're not shopping because you don't need. So the basic view from Sokshen is the mind is complete from the very beginning. Whatever is needed is already present. So you sit in a, in a comfortable way with the spine straight, breathing in a normal way. Usually we have our eyes open, resting in the space in front of you. At first, this can seem a little bit uh, agitating. Or you can have it, your eyes almost closed, looking down the line of your nose. If you do that, then as you look down, don't focus on any point on the floor or the tip of your nose, but relax the gaze so it's kind of panoramic. So you're looking down, but eased out. Because whenever you have an attention focused on an object, it will increase the dualistic sense of subject and object. We want to allow subject and object formations to arise and pass as energy. So the key thing is, I am not the subject. Subjectivity is an energy pattern flowing through the mind. Object formations are energy patterns moving through the mind. Awareness is neither subject nor object, but it can look like subject, it can look like object. So the basic meditation instruction, you just sit and whatever comes, comes. Whatever it is, dogs barking outside, some itchy feeling in your neck, some memory, some thought, don't get involved. Let it be. It's not me. It's not me. As long as you identify with it, you'll be managing your self-construct in trying to make yourself the way you want to be. So it's about relaxing and releasing identification that you are the doer of the deed. Letting it happen. Then when you come to the end of your sitting, you, you rise up and you make your tea or whatever, and you find that life is flowing through you. You are participating. You go into the kitchen. You have a gas heater or you have an electric heater. However it is, you respond to that. Your behavior emerges through your connectivity with the environment. It's not subject onto object, but the co-emergence of your participative belonging in the non-dual field. 
Okay. Wonderful. Thank you, James. Um, another question in the chat pod. Uh, when one stays with the immediacy of open awareness, mm -hmm. is one still aware of experience via the sense organs? Ears, nose, touch, taste, maybe yeah. mind? Yes. Yeah. However, if you... In... As experience is arising altogether, there's a term that's used a lot for this, which is salwa. It's often translated as clarity. In the clarity is the immediate showing of how it is. So what, what is arising and passing is not something that has to be made sense of, but is it is as it shows. So if, you, if you're aware of your senses and you're tracking your sense, now I'm hearing this, now I'm seeing this, as you might in some kinds of vipassana, where you, you have a, a very light kind of commentarial uh, attention to what's going on, that would not be helpful. So the senses are unimpeded. The, the description of the meditation practice is sky to sky as if this, the open sky of the mind and the sky of the field of experience are completely unimpeded. So whatever's happening is arising and it's allowed to pass. So we're not going after past thoughts and worrying about what we just said. Oh my God, he's going to be so upset. Or I didn't say that very clearly because then you, you're not here. You've gone into a mental world. So don't block the senses. Stay fresh and they will refresh you. Yeah. Okay, wonderful, thank you. Um, another question here, it says, um, how do you know if this intrinsic open spaciousness, ultimate mind is not induced by your relative mind, uh, not created, uh, not my hallucination? Well, all compounded things are impermanent. All constructed things will vanish in time. When I get up in the morning and I recognize I am James, if I do that with a cognitive recognition, then I am recognizing the pattern which I am habituated to call James. That is very different from the revealing of open awareness as it is always, not moment by moment. It's not a moment by moment phenomenon. Experience arises moment by moment, but awareness is just clear and open. So if something is a construct, it will take on the shape for a while and then dissolve. So if I have imagined that I'm relaxed and open, if I have um, organized an aspect of my mind which gives me a kind of uh, ersatz, a kind of um, simulacrum of a truly open experience, that could be deluding. I would agree with that. So in the, in the tradition, they talk about a term in Tibetan called nyam, which means a kind of meditation experience. Um, 
And one of these is the absence of thought. So the mind is open and empty. Could be a little bit like the sky, but it's actually a kind of not very vibrant emptiness. But it can be quite deluding. Or you could have a kind of clarity. You feel bright and fresh and everything seems uh, vibrant in its immediacy. You're not engaging a lot in conceptualization. There are many of these different kinds of nyams, and they're like a kind of cul-de-sac. They're kind of dead-end road. So I think what the question is pointing to is that certainly you could, you could be creating a delusion for yourself, which you take to be the state. But actually, the state is, is there because it's, actually it's not the state. It's not a state of something. It just is. It just is. Um, and the way we find this is by doing our practice of doing less. The less you do when you're sitting, the more confident that you are that you're not creating. If your mind is busy when you're meditating, then of course you're creating all kinds of things. You're having judgments, good, bad, right, wrong. So you should never think about your practice. And certainly you should never talk about your practice to other people, maybe to a teacher a little bit. But if you talk about it, then it becomes something you talk about. It becomes the object. You become the subject. You separate yourself from the experience. And you're taking the past, how my meditation was this morning, and you're bringing it into the present as if it was something. And it's become a representation. It's no longer that fresh moment. So in the tradition, through Chud and through the different kinds of practice, we have the use of this syllable pet, which is a, a cutting kind of sound. Pet! So you cut through the flow of thoughts and then you have the mind open. And then, of course, movement comes again. It, it's not that you want to keep the openness separate from the movement. The movement is the energetic showing of the openness. So if the mind is relaxed and open, experience will be going on. You, know, you don't want to come to a pure openness where nothing is happening. Remember, Chogyam Trumba said, if nothing was happening in the Buddha's mind, every hospital would have to have a ward for Buddhas because they'd just be lying in bed not doing anything. Wonderful. Um, continuing on with the questions there, uh, I see one that says... Um, Sometimes you refer to the ground as intrinsic openness of the mind. Would it be helpful to relate to mind as universal, not subjective? Well, it depends really what you mean by, by universal. This, this term ground, which is a translation of the word ji in Tibetan, which can mean the ground or the basis. Sometimes it gets translated as the source. The difficulty with this language is uh, you see a river and then somebody says, oh, this has its uh, source in the Sierra Nevada or something. There, there's some mountains and it's, the river comes from there. It comes here from there. We're going to build a mansion on this ground. So all the words that we use indicate um, some positioning, 
which stands in relation to something else. This is the problem with language. <clears throat> language is always about relationship. Language is relative truth. There is no language for absolute truth. So as soon as you come into language, you, it's very, very tricky territory. So there is a verse of praise for Prajnaparamita, the transcendent wisdom that we have in the Heart Sutra. And it begins saying, uh, with beyond speech, thought and expression is this transcendent wisdom. Nobody can say it. So we have to be very careful not to, to, to think that we're discussing some kind of cosmology or some metaphysical structure. Everything shows itself from the ground, in the ground, as the ground. Now, that's a strange thing to say. From the ground, in a sense, you could say that the reflection shows itself from the mirror. It's on the surface of the mirror. But the reflection is in the mirror. And as we look at the mirror, the reflection is as the mirror. The mirror is the reflection in that moment. They're not the same, but they're not different. So the ground is the unborn. Unborn means never come into existence. Just empty and open. Emptiness is the fundamental understanding that we need to get through studying the Madhyamika and Yogacara literature. It's good to have some intellectual basis for that. To really see that everything is impermanent. You know, for example, you take an apple and you look at the apple and you see it's sort of red on the outside and it has the shape and you take a knife and you cut it in half. When you were looking at the red on the outside, you didn't see what was inside. Now it looks different. It's the same apple. Then, oh, apple is a concept. Apple is a concept. We said, it's the same apple. Look, I just cut it in half. Which half do you want? I'll share it with you. Cut it very well. It's the same size. You choose. There's a concept. When we look at the world, we think we see with our eyes, but our perception and our conception, our use of concepts, merge together. Merge together. The perceptual field in its purity is just emptiness. This is why to see this is the, the mother of all the Buddhas. Prajnaparamita, the great wisdom that sees the emptiness of everything. This is the mother of all the Buddhas. But when the mother and the father don't agree, then the father, which is the method, which is the movement of the mind, if the movement, if the mom and dad get a divorce, then you have a problem. Samsara is the divorce between the empty mother and the active dad, if that language makes sense. When they are together, then the ground, which is not anywhere, it's not anything, shows itself instantly, ceaselessly, as these forms. And we are in that field of formation. We are not things. There are no things. There is only the luminosity of the mind. So it's not a, it's not a concept. It's not a self-delusion. Thank you, James. Um... You know, as we are um, kind of in these times of, uh, you know, one could see them as draconian lockdown measures to racial killings and 
you know, we, we're, a lot of us are taking up positions of kind of activism and speaking out against injustice and speaking for freedom and, and all of that there. There seems to be a fine line between merging into these activities and remaining in awareness. Um, how does one, if you were to say, become an activist or want to speak out against these things, how do we operate in this space of awareness but needing to participate in, to some degree in, in samsara? Is, if that makes sense? Yeah. Any tips? I mean, generally speaking, the Western historical notion is uh, towards modernism. It's onwards and ever upwards. It's a, a linear progression that you could move forward. And people have written about the end of history, you know, that you get some kind of capitalist paradise where we all have enough to eat and that's nothing else is going to happen. The end of revolution and contestation. Buddhism is not like that at all. Buddhism is concerned with cyclical time. Friends become enemies, enemies become friends. In the Second World War, the Russians were our friends. They were fighting against Hitler. Uh, they were fighting with the Americans and the British and the Free French and so on. At the end of the Second World War, the Russians became our enemies. And the Germans became our friends. And America arranged for many Gestapo officers to come to America. Now, that's interesting. So the idea of good guys over here and bad guys over there, that's a little bit naive. This is a complex turning world. Complex turning world. So activism needs to be free of hubris. It needs to be free of a kind of inflated notion that I know the truth, I see clearly. Life is very, very, very complicated. Friends become enemies. Are the Chinese our enemies or our friends? Mr. Trump believes the Russians are his friend. Other people believe the Russians are very dangerous. Who is right? That depends. That depends means dependent co-origination. So activism done with awareness is very helpful. But when we become emotionally aroused, then we're like a horse going into the market. Then they put the blinkers on the eyes and then we become dogmatic in our truth. They are the enemy. The police did this. The police did this. You must stop this. Now we know what the police are. We don't know these policemen. Some may be very cruel and selfish. Some may be very kind. Some are keeping the job even though they don't like it because they've got kids they've got to feed. Human situation is difficult. So this is what Buddhism is always saying. When you have judgment, when you have definite knowledge about things, please remember impermanence. Please remember the absence of inherent self-nature. Please remember that everything is the emanation or the showing of the energy of the ground. Of course, you can make changes, but do it lightly without strongly being convinced that you're good and they're bad. Makes sense. And so uh, maybe a question kind of related to this, you may have, sounds like you already answered. I'll ask it anyway. You know, how can we stay safe and set boundaries while remaining open to what is happening and not judging? I think it's more related to is coronavirus and, and, and things of that nature. Well, if you stand on my foot, I'm open to the arising of the sensation of pain. So I say, please stop standing on my foot. You know, and to be, to be open 
and receptive <clears throat> in meditation is slightly different from being open and receptive when you are in the world. So now in England, autumn is beginning and the weather is very unpredictable. So if I go out in the morning, I open the door and I get a feel of the air and I might go back and get a jacket. The sun may be shining, but the air is still very cold. So I'm working with circumstances. Namkai Norbu, this uh, great teacher of Soshen, he always said you have to work with circumstances. It means don't take up a fixed position. But if it's cold, you put on a jacket. If it's your hot, take your jacket off. So setting limits means not that you set a limit as a kind of super ego. I'm your dad and I'm telling you what to do. It's your bedtime. Sometimes that may be appropriate, <clears throat> but mainly you're working with the circumstances. So if it's a kid's birthday, you let them stay up a bit later. If they look really tired, you try to squeeze them into bed a bit earlier. You know, you're, you're working with the energetic formation. Uh, rules and regulations are very helpful. Don't park your car there. That's not, a, you know, the law says don't do that. That's helpful. But many interactions between people can't be addressed by, by law. James, uh, you know, if, uh, if someone would, uh, has interest in practicing Dzogchen, uh, does one need prior uh, teachings or empowerments or to, to, to practice or is it uh, kind of an open thing? It almost seems uh, rebellious in nature uh, in terms of uh, the, the thought uh, and compared to other schools or things. I just wanted to get your thoughts around that. What, what do we need to do if I, someone was interested in, in this path? Okay. The, the first thing, this is the way my teacher uh, uh, taught me. The first thing you need to know is that you cheat yourself. So you need to be willing to spend time be with your mind and seeing what funny things you do. That you avoid doing things you should do, you do things you shouldn't do, you're lazy or, or whatever it would be. And you just start to see this strange unpredictability of, of your actuality, of how you actually are, in relation to your self-image, how I am and what I would like myself to be or what I take myself to be or what I present myself as being are not the same. So in Sokshin, we are concerned with the actual, with how it is. We're not concerned with makeup and fancy clothes. We want the raw, the naked to see how it is. And if you are able to sit with your mind, your mind will show you what you're up to. Of course, there are many books now, we have many recordings that give a lot of encouragement in, in this direction, but the teaching is not an add-on. <clears throat> it's not something you add to your life. For example, if you get an initiation and a mantra and a visualization, this is something added to your life. Now you can, you're empowered to say this mantra and it connects you with the lineage and so on. But in the text, the mind is naked. So we are not concerned to clothe ourselves with any spiritual activity or worldly activities. You can do them, but it's not to clothe yourself with them. We want to be present 
in the open awareness, however it shows itself. So, for example, say you're quite an angry kind of person. If you see that anger is an energetic formation, that your anger goes into aversion, that your first tendency is to say no, and you see other people, their first tendency is to say yes. Yes, no. They're the same. They're just positionings. Of course, if you say no a lot to people and push them away, they get upset. They feel rejected. They feel hurt and so on. They think you're a troublesome person. So they come to a conclusion about you. Now, you might then think, well, fuck you. I don't care what you think. I'm just me. That would not be Dzogchen. You know, you have to think, wow, what is this? Because it's non-dual. There is you and there is me. There is the field and me. And we're observing me in the field. So, we don't have so much time, but it's often said that there are these three aspects. We've covered them, but I'll say it more precisely now. The mind is ungraspably open. When you look for the mind, you can't find it. That's the first aspect. Secondly, experience is ceaseless. There's always this, the wholeness of this arising instantly, just like this, just like this, just like this. And within this, there is the exquisitely precise movement of me as a participant in the world. So I am moving in a world I already belong to. <clears throat> and the illusion that I am an autonomous, separate subject stepping over the threshold, will I join in, will I not? this delusion starts to dissolve. And you see that I'm always on the inside. I am within the great completion. And therefore, in the practice, whenever you find yourself dislocating yourself by putting yourself into a place of apartness, you observe that. Oh, this is energy. This is activity. I separate myself in order to continue with the illusion that I am separate. But when you then relax, you see that all the constituents of I, me, myself, everything which constitutes who I take myself to be, is arising from the ground. I didn't make my own body. I don't make my thoughts. When I've been speaking with you guys today, I don't have a script. I'm kind of looking at pictures of people's faces in front of me and I'm talking, which is kind of a strange thing. I'd rather be in a room with you. But life flows. If you give yourself to it, it flows. So participation is this third aspect. Connective participation, articulated participation. So that's really how we can ensure that we're not getting lost. Because if you privilege the other and you become the servant, that's not good. If you privilege yourself and you want the other to be the servant, that's not good. It's a co-emergent articulation. So that's like an exquisite, unchoreographed pas de deux. It's like finding the rhythm in the moment as it is. So you have to be not doing it. It will happen if you don't do it. This is the... This is the big shift into Dzogchen, to see life awareness 
freedom is intuitive. It comes to us, through us, as us, but it's not our possession. That's wonderful. Thank you, James. I think that's a wonderful stopping point at this time. Uh, you've been so generous with your time from Diamond Light here in Sacramento. We thank you so much.